Welcome guys, it's a great privilege to be speaking to you today. So my name's Dan, I'm one of the pastors at Everyday Church um, and I take great joy in speaking about Jesus. I'm really excited to be speaking on this series, series on identity. Uh, you'll know if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we're, we're talking about, in the first half of this series, we're talking about Jacob. We're going through the book of Genesis and we're looking at um, Jacob in, in the book of Genesis and kind of his story, a bit about who he is and his journey of kind of learning who he is in God and kind of working out his identity. Um, so I thought I'd catch us up a little bit on the story before I move on to the main bit of uh, what I'm speaking on today, which will be wrestling with God. I'm going to be specifically looking at Genesis 32, 22 to 32. So if you want to uh, open a Bible, if you have one, that would be great. And you can follow along with me as I read that passage. But I want to lead us up to the moment that happens here. Um, this is actually quite a difficult passage to grasp and understand. It's another one of those passages where you read and you just think, what is going on here? I just don't get this. Um, but this is the most significant moment in, in Jacob's journey. I think this is, this is the moment when Jacob's life turns around. It's a real turning point. Um, so it would be good to go across the story of Jacob and just what led us to this, what's led him to this moment and then what we can learn from it. So the story so far, so we know, and we've been reading through Genesis, we know, um, let, me get the, let me get Genesis up. So we know that Jacob, uh, his name means in Hebrew deceiver, trickster. Jacob has spent his whole life trying to earn or deceive or kind of trick his way into the promises of God. He's had these amazing promises spoken over him. You know, the extension of kind of Abraham's promise of um, his, his descendants being as numerous as the stars. Jacob knows these promises for himself. These have been spoken over in this family, the second born of Isaac, which is we, we knew was unusual. Esau being the first born would normally get the blessing from the father, but it was spoken over that Jacob would get it. Um, but Jacob tricked his way to it. Even though God had promised it, Jacob is always someone that feels the need to kind of trick his way into these promises of God. And um, he's been on, a, been on a right journey. He's, he's alienating himself from his family, from his brother. He's had to run away. And he's ended up in the land of Laban, his, his uncle. And there he's met his, his wives, Leah and Rachel, who are sisters. He's married both of them. Um, and he's been working from Laban. And Phil was showing us last week about how Jacob is still trying to make the promises of God happen for himself. You know, God's promised him this great wealth and he's, um, he's trying to negotiate with Laban, an excuse to kind of leave. He's saying, I want to go. Laban's saying, look after him. Look, I'll pay you any wages. And uh, so Jacob's gone, all right, I'll have the speckled, go speckled goats. And we learned last week how he's relying on superstition to see that happen. You know, he's trying to do the twigs. He's kind of cutting holes in them to, to make his sheep speckled or not speckled, depending on what he what the agreement with Laban is at that time. 
Um, he's had a couple of kids by this point as well. Leah's had a couple of kids um, for him. And, and by this point as well, Rachel, who was infertile, has uh, by a miracle of God now had two kids as well. She's had Joseph and Benjamin. So he's got quite a few kids and he's got quite a lot of property, quite a lot of wealth. And he's got to the point where he's noticed um, his uncle Laban, um, his attitude towards him has changed a little bit. And he's thinking, right, it's time to go. I've got to go. Um, and, and move on to somewhere else. And um, God makes him a promise. When he speaks to God, he's kind of seen his heart as different. God says to him, um, go back. He says to Jacob, go back to, this is in chapter 31, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. God makes him this promise. He says, go back, go back to where you came from. Go back to Canaan, go back to your promised land, and I promise you, I will be with you. So Jacob's like, great, all right, I'll do it. But Jacob being Jacob... He, rather than think, seeing this as a promise from God, rather than seeing that God has just promised to look after him on this journey as he, as he kind of goes home, he's like, I've got to cheat. I've got to, I've got to trick again and work my way through this. I've got to cheat and um, deceive my way to, this, uh, to being able to leave Laban. Rather than just go to his uncle and say, hey, we're off, I'm, uh, I'm going, he decides I'm going to sneak off. He's going to sneak off in the middle of the night take all of his belongings, a lot of sheep. He's got loads of kids at this point, loads of servants. Um, he's got his two wives, Laban's two daughters. And he thinks we're going to sneak off in the middle of the night because God says he'll be with us, but Laban's going to be annoyed. So I'd better take it to my own hands to sneak off. So he does just that. Rachel, who, uh, who's a bit of a problem, um, she, she's a, she can be a bit of a nightmare Rachel, and she, she basically, as they go, decides to steal some of Laban's household gods as well. Just to make matters worth, not only are they stealing, sneaking off in the middle of the night, she thinks, I'm going to nick some of Laban's um, false gods, his idols, um, which shows kind of Laban's heart towards God. Now, understandably, once Laban realizes his, his nephew and his daughters and kind of his grandchildren, everyone's suddenly gone. He's really annoyed about this. And he realizes gods have been stolen. He's thinking, not only has Jacob gone, he's stolen from me. He doesn't know it's his daughter that's done it. So he pursues them. He goes after them. He raises an army and thinks, we're going to get him. This is out of order. Like, he, hasn't, he should have come and spoke to me about this. It just feels like an insult. Um, and God, keeping his promise to Jacob, warns Laban. He says, you are not to say anything good or bad to him. He warns him not to harm Jacob. So Laban catches up with Jacob and he just rebukes him. He is not happy. He says to him, come on, like, why couldn't you have come and spoke to me? You should have told me about this. You should have said you were going to go. I would have been able to celebrate. I didn't even get to say goodbye to my grandkids. You didn't let me say goodbye to my daughters. You should have come and spoken to me. And then we could have had a big feast. We could have had a celebration. And I could have commissioned you off with joy. Um, instead, it has to end like this. More so, he accuses him about the, the gods and the false gods. Jacob said, I haven't stolen your gods. Jacob is actually telling the truth this time. He doesn't know they've nicked the gods. He's saying, I haven't stolen them. And he goes, right, well, let me search your place. Jacob lets him search all the tents, lets him look out. Um, Rachel has actually hidden them on herself. She's hidden these gods. Um, so as Jacob searches everywhere, Rachel says, I can't come down off my, off my camel or my donkey, whatever she's sitting on there. She kind of makes up a story that it's her time of the month. That's a lie. The reason she doesn't want to get down off the uh, uh, donkey, um, she says it's her, it's her period, but it's not. Actually, she's um, hidden. She's on her possession. is hidden the gods. And so that way Laban doesn't find out about it. So it's all just such a, it's such a mess. Whenever Jacob tries to take these things into his own hands, more mess is created. 
Laban and him agree, they make a covenant together, and they, they kind of um, literally build like a pillar, um, like a monument or um, an altar, and just say, we will not go past this point. I'll stick to this side, you stick to your side, and we won't come back across each other. Um, so Jacob's made a real mess of this. Yes, God's delivered him, but because he didn't chat with his uncle, he's now cut ties with him. It's all a bit of a mess, and he, he now can't ever go back that way and see his uncle again. His, his uh, wives won't be able to see their father again. He's just, it's, it's just more damage to his family. It's already so broken because Jacob just keeps deceiving and lying rather than trusting in the promises of God. God is blessing him by allowing this stuff to, to work out, but it's messy. It's so messy. This isn't, God doesn't plan it to be this messy or want it to be this messy, um, but Jacob's scheming makes it so messy. So we carry on in the story, and Jacob is, is suddenly remembering, as he's heading back to his own, uh, his own kind of place he grew up in, his hometown, he's thinking, Oh, yeah, what about Esau? We picked this up in chapter 32 now. Thinking, what about my brother? Now, I didn't leave in good terms. <laughs> it wasn't very good when Jacob left. The last thing his brother said to him was that um, he will kill him if he sees him again. His brother, he'd stolen his brother's blessing. There was no blessing left. His brother was so angry. Esau was so angry with him and promised to kill him. Made a promise to kill him. And Jacob's suddenly thinking, Oh, yeah, I'm going back to my brother, and he, he wanted to kill me. So he thinks, all right, I'll send some messengers ahead. Let's just go and see, you know, maybe he's dead. He might not be alive. Let's go and find out what's going on. Maybe he's forgiven me. Let's find out what happens. So he's, it tells us in chapter 32, he sends the messages, and in verse 6, it says, when the, me- when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Now, Jacob doesn't assume this is a welcome committee. <laughs> Um, 400 men, that's an army. Jacob's thinking, oh no, my brother's coming with an army. He means to kill me and destroy all I have. Jacob's terrified. He can't go backwards. He can't leg it because he's just cut ties with Laban. You know, he's made a real mess here. He could have left on good terms. And even now that's backdrop, he can't. He can't go back now. He's completely messed that up. And ahead of him is his brother and 400 men coming for what he thinks for a battle. Man, Jacob has got himself in a mess. He is terrified. He splits his um, people up into two groups. He's thinking, well, if I have two groups, at least if my brother kills one of them, I'll have another group. If they kind of wipe out that group, at least there's some more left over. He genuinely thinks this is going to happen. And remember, God has promised he will be with him. Jacob has so quickly already forgotten that promise. He's still relying on his own strength, and he can't see a way out of this, even though God has said he'll be fine, and God has already delivered him from Laban just before. Laban even tells him it was because God spoke to him is the reason he's not come to destroy um, Jacob. Yet Jacob is still terrified and not trusting in God. He then goes to pray, as you would. Verse 9 tells us, This prayer Jacob prays, he looks up to God and you think maybe this moment, maybe Jacob's finally got it. He says, oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. He's remembering the promise of God. He's even saying them back to God. He hasn't forgotten them. I am unworthy of all your kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan. But now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me. 
and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Jacob is proving here that he hasn't forgotten the promises of God. He knows exactly what God has promised, yet he's still terrified. Because we think in this moment, maybe finally Jacob's got it. Maybe this is the moment it's turned around, finally. But it says then he spent the night there still worrying. And he's, he's thinking, all right, I've prayed to God, so God's heard me. He's praying out of superstition, as Phil said last week. He's, kind of, he's, not, he's not seeing this as a moment of God's going to keep his promises. He's thinking, hey, what harm can it do to just at least talk to God? Let's pray about it. God could maybe work something up there. In the meantime, I will work out my next bit. It says he then starts sending gifts forward. He sends gifts of servants and sheep and camels ahead of him to his brother, thinking this might appease my brother. This might calm him. He's relying still on his own strength and his own techniques to try and avoid a war with his brother, even though he knows God has promised to deliver him. It just shows he doesn't really quite believe, either he doesn't believe the promise or he doesn't believe God really has the power to fulfill the promises made to him. So Jacob, we pick it up in verse 22, which will come up on the screen here. So it says, Jacob got up and took his two wives and two female servants and 11 sons and crossed the ford at Jabok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. He's left himself alone. He's kind of... He knows he's got a sleepless night ahead. It's night now and he's worried. He's got his uncle behind him. He can't go back that way. He's got his brother on his way to kill him is what he thinks. And so he, he's, um, he's scared. He's scared and he thinks, I'm not going to sleep tonight. I need some space on my own and I just need to pray. I need to think. I, need to, I just need some space on my own. I'm worried. And this is when it gets a bit weird. <laughs> so Jacob was left alone. Verse 24. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. I'll read it with you on the screen so we follow this together. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, asking, uh, saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Now let's break this passage down a little bit, because I'm aware that this is, um, this is quite a hard passage to go through. Um, when I first ever read this, I found it's really difficult to, um, to work out, to be honest with you. But um, kind of as I said, Jacob's all on his own. He's, he's scared, he's terrified. Um, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Yeah, now that is a little bit weird, the way it jumps straight to that. It gives an image of the suddenness of this fight. Jacob's completely alone, and suddenly he's in this fight. Yeah, like you almost feel like a paragraph's been missed out there. Have I missed a chapter or something like that? Um, suddenly he's in this fight with this man, and Jacob's right into it. He's in the fight. And then this man, um, 
It's getting near daybreak. This man wants the fight to be over. So he touches Jacob's hip and just pops it out of his socket. Now, I don't know if you ever, as a kid, I used to watch wrestling. I used to love watching WWF, it was called. It's WWE now. Um, my favorite wrestler was The Rock. Uh, I used to love it. And they had their special moves. They had their finishing moves, you know. And these were the ones. If they got this moving, that was basically the end of the fight. Yeah, it was basically over. And their moves, like generally, it was really cool when you're a kid and you're watching it, but they were rubbish. Like, they were never going to incapacitate a man. These men are massive, and yet these little kind of moves, these little slams or something, after the whole fight that's happened before, they get hit with a sledgehammer and get up quicker than after one of these <laughs> moves. So, um, but they threw it out, and that would end the fight. This man Jacob's wrestling with, his special move, he can touch your hip and pop it out of his socket. I would have started with that if I was getting in a fight. Yeah, that's one quick way to end the fight, isn't it? If you've got this move where you can just touch your hip and pop it out, the fight's done. So we're learning something about the mercy of this guy that's fighting Jacob because he didn't just do that at the beginning. There was a moment where Jacob would not give up the fight, so he humbled him by touching his hip and completely disabling him, incapacitating him. Jacob gets an idea immediately of who this guy is. Suddenly he knows this isn't just a man I'm fighting. He knows this is God. And we know this because he clings onto him. Jacob's in agony now. He's in so much pain. His hips popped out of its socket. He's in so much pain of it. Yet he clings onto this man and says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You must bless me. There is a moment here when Jacob finally gets it. He finally gets it. He has been struggling. He's been striving. He's been fighting for his own life, for his whole life, for the promises of God. And right here and now is the first time that he's gone to God and asked for the blessing himself. There's a personal relationship, a personal request that is beginning here. This is the moment of Jacob's salvation. He finally gets it. The man says to him, what is your name? Jacob, he answers, which we know if you were here in the previous uh, weeks, Jacob in Hebrew means deceiver, trickster, liar. Jacob says, my name's deceiver, my name's liar, my name's a trickster. That's what he answers. And the man says, not anymore. God says to him, no longer will you be known as Jacob, but you'll be known as Israel. Because you've struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Israel means prevailed with God. This moment where Jacob has turned to God, he's prevailed by going to God for his blessing. His fighting's over. He's been so humbled at this point, he's got to go and fight his brother now with a disability. He's thinking, I can't. It is impossible. If he ever thought he had a chance before, he's got no chance now against his brother. But this is what God wanted him to know. God wanted him to be humbled and brought to his knees so that he knows it's only God. That's going to answer this. Jacob has no ability to make these big promises God has spoken of his life happen. Not without the power of God. Jacob's asking his name. The guy says, you don't need to ask for my name. You don't need to ask my name. You know who I am. And he blesses him then and there. And Jacob acknowledges that it's seeing God face to face when he renames the place Peniel. Which I think is how you pronounce it. He acknowledges that he sees God face to face and he acknowledges the mercy of God in that moment because he just fought with God. He should have died. He should have died. But yet his life was spared. He gets something of his salvation in this moment. He was face to face with God. He fought and he received a blessing. Is what he got out of it. 
What mercy and grace of God over this man's life. This fight was not good for Jacob. He gains a disability out of this. It's not good to fight and wrestle with God, but in God's mercy, he uses this to humble Jacob to the point where Jacob gets saved from it. This is a turning point for Jacob. Jacob's whole life turns around at this point. From then on, you know, the next part of this series, identity, we're going to be looking at Joseph, one of Jacob's sons. And Joseph's completely different to Jacob for his whole life. Joseph gets this personal relationship with God. And the reason he gets it, he's evidently been taught it. Something's changed with Jacob here where he's teaching his youngest sons about the personal relationship they can have with God. Because Joseph walks in this. Something has changed with Jacob here. Jacob only knew the God of his granddad, the God of his dad, you know, Isaac's God. Whenever he prays, he prays to the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham, his dad and his granddad. That's only how he's known God. It was never his own God. He never knew God personally. He knew that God had the power to, to speak these promises, but he always thought it was his job to make them happen. He always thought he had to fight for this. I've got to strive for this. I've got to work. It's only by my strength will these promises happen. Now he knows God personally. He personally seeks the blessing from God. He walks in a new faith from this point, in a personal relationship with God. This is amazing. He's finally grasped who God is and how he loves us. God could have wiped out all humanity at the full, but he didn't. Instead, he makes a way for us to get to know him. And we know that way. Jacob didn't know that way yet. Jacob didn't really know who he was wrestling with. He didn't know that was Jesus. We know the man of God to be Jesus. He doesn't know Jesus is going to live and die yet. Even the prophecies haven't been spoken about it yet that come out in, in the Old Testament. He doesn't know this is coming, but in this moment he grabs something of it, this mercy of God and the fact that salvation comes from God and God alone. In this encounter with Jesus, we know because of the New Testament that Jesus is the only way. That Jesus lived and he died for us and he's the only way for us to have a personal relationship with God. The Bible tells us that our, our sin cuts us off. Our sin cuts us off from a relationship with God. So when we think of religion, which is what most, a lot of Christians can class themselves as, as religious or as part of a religion. We know that to be a lie. Religion means earning your salvation by works. Religion really means it's, it's, a, it's a load of rules or a load of works we have to do to earn our way to God. And it's so sad because religion, religion leads to death. It just is so painful. You're never sure if you're truly saved because you will never know if you've done enough good. We all know that we fall short. We all know there's something wrong. Yeah? We all know that there's something wrong in our lives. Religion says then we, we need to do works to earn that, but you will never know if you've done enough good. That's why we live by faith, not by works. Jesus calls us to faith in him. He died so that we don't have to. He died and took our sin and our shame and our guilt and all the things that were wrong, and he destroyed them at the cross. Jacob is finally getting this, that never by his own works is he going to see the promises of God fulfilled. Is he going to see his salvation only by faith in God. Only by faith in Jesus do we have a personal relationship with him. And can we be so sure of our salvation? A New Testament example of this in practice is um, the Apostle Paul. So Paul writes most of the letters in the New Testament. Um, 
And Paul was a bad guy. He used to be called Saul. Yeah, at the beginning, he was a bad guy. He, um, he hated Christians. He was a religious guy. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. So one of the teachers of Judaism, he had studied it all his life. And he was very content that if he just kept to all these rules and all these laws and just kept kind of striving to be this good person, that he can claim these promises of God of this salvation for himself. He can earn his way there. So much so that he was part of the killing of Christians. He was happy Jesus was gone. He was happy Jesus was killed as a heretic for blaspheming, for claiming he was the son of God. He was happy about that and he killed Christians who said it because he was so offended that these guys were saying, no, 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 we can never do enough good. It's only by Jesus because they're pointing to Jesus as God. Man, he was like, no way. Don't tell me I'm not saved because that's what they're saying. For every religious person, those Christians were saying, you are not actually saved. You are not going to heaven because you can never do enough good. But they're saying, here's the good news though. Here's the good news. Jesus has done all the good, all the good we ever need to do. And they're saying to them, grab hold of these promises. Grab hold of Jesus. Put your faith in him and you will be saved. Paul's like, nope, kill them. Kill them. I'm not taking that. So he needs his own moment of wrestling with God. With him, it's slightly different. A man doesn't turn up to fight him. Instead, he's on the road to Damascus and God meets him in a flash of light that blinds him, totally blinds him. Again, as we've seen with Jacob, wrestling with God was not a good thing. Jacob ends up disabled. Paul, his encounter isn't great either. He ends up blind. But for both of them, they get saved because of this. God meets him and he shows him who he really is. And he says, he's, he meets Jesus, the, the, um, Jesus in all his glory. And he knows immediately he's wrong. He knows immediately he's been wrong. He knows immediately all the work he's ever done has been for nothing. But he suddenly sees the mercy and grace of God because God can wipe him out in that moment and should. He's killing God's people. But by the grace and mercy of God, he doesn't. He reveals himself and he says, repent, Paul. Repent, Saul. And Saul does. And he's given a new name, Paul. His eyesight's restored to him. And man, does he suddenly get this salvation. His life is transformed. Just like Jacob's in after this encounter with God that he survived in, Paul's life is transformed. Suddenly, he knows he no longer needs to do any work. His salvation is assured. It's guaranteed because of his faith in Jesus. Jesus was enough. He is enough. His cross, the cross was the greatest victory ever and is enough for everything Paul's ever done wrong. There's no works he needs to do now. But man, does he want to tell people about it. There's something exciting. Suddenly he sees, but all these religious people, all these other Jews, what I used to be, they, they don't get this. They're still doing works. They're still trying to earn their salvation. I have to tell them the truth. Do you know, and he speaks to everyone. It's not just Jews. He starts telling the Gentiles. Um, he starts telling people that aren't Jewish. Gentiles are just anyone that wasn't Jewish. He tells them as well. And so many people turn to Jesus because of his ministry. His life is transformed in that moment because he gets it. He just gets it. He's walking a personal relationship with Jesus. And he's not trying to do these things. He's not now reading his Bible or praying or even evangelizing, telling people about Jesus because he needs to do that to earn his salvation. No, he knows his salvation is guaranteed and assured. But he now walks in a personal relationship with Jesus. 
So the reason he wants to do this stuff is because he wants to get to know God more. You read your Bible, you read this book, not because we, we have to to earn our salvation, but because we want to get to know Jesus more. We pray because we desire this personal relationship with Jesus that's in front of us. It's given to us. So of course we want to talk to him through the highs and lows of our life. The stuff we're thankful for, the stuff that we're finding hard. We want to pray. We do that because it's part of the relationship, not because we have to. And then Paul says, in one of the letters he writes, Paul gets in prison for his faith. Yeah, it doesn't, this isn't a glorious thing for him. He isn't living in some rich mansion. This doesn't become really prosperous for him. In fact, every, all of the riches and respect and standing he had when he wasn't walking with God, he loses all of it. He ends up in prison on death row. It does eventually lead to his execution. He loses everything. But he doesn't see it that way. He writes, to the, he writes in the letter uh, Philippians to the Philippians. In chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, he says to them, speaking of kind of everything he's, he's lost, he says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's actually saying in this moment, everything is a loss. There's nothing good apart from Jesus. I'll give anything up for knowing Jesus and living for him. For Christ is my Lord, who for whose sake I have lost all things. He's acknowledging I've lost it all, but I'm okay with this. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. This, he's writing this in ancient Greek, the New Testament. Most of it's in ancient Greek. And the word for garbage he uses here, this is a nice polite English translation. But basically, it's the strongest way of saying the stuff you flush down the toilet, basically. Whatever your culture, the, the strongest word, the swear word for that would be, that's what he's saying here. He's really strongly saying, I consider everything absolute rubbish, filth, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, something I can earn, something I can work towards, but that which is through faith, a righteousness through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. In another part of Philippians, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He acknowledges he has gained everything in Jesus, so he changes his life. Nothing has any worth to him anymore apart from Jesus. Do you know, when we get this, guys, it has to radically change our life. It has to. This is everything. This is good news. And I just want to challenge you. Do you know, you may have been a Christian for ages. Do you know, you may have been someone that, that has always thought of themselves as a Christian, but in reality, it's religion and superstition that you've been holding on to. You've not known this personal relationship with Jesus. Or you might just be looking through the window, going, what is this Christianity all about? You're all so welcome. I'm so glad you're hearing this today. Let me tell you, this gift of salvation, this promise Jesus gives us, this offer of a personal relationship with him is for everyone. And you know, we have to do nothing to earn it. This is the good news of the Bible. You have to do nothing to earn this. It is there for you today. You just need to turn to Jesus. Like Jacob did when he said, um, will you bless me? Like Paul did when he, when he just got that he'd only been working for religion and not towards God in a personal relationship. Right now, you can do that too and say, okay, God, I'm yours. The people willing to help you through that if you don't know quite how to lead yourself there. But Jesus loves you. God loves you so much. 
And that's why he sent his son to die for you, so that you can walk in his personal relationship and come to learn the lessons that Jacob learned the hard way, and that Paul learned the hard way, that we don't have to wrestle and fight God for these promises, but they are yours to claim today. They are for you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for all you've done on the cross. I thank you that, that we don't need to, to fight for these promises, Lord. We don't need to wrestle these promises from your hand in a closed-fisted way. Lord, you have, you have promised us our salvation. You have promised us that if we put our faith in your Son and what he's done on the cross, Lord, that we will be with you in glory. When it all comes to an end, when, when we die and we take nothing of this world with us, you promise us if our faith's in Jesus, then our salvation is assured and we're guaranteed into heaven. Not by anything we've done, but what you've done. And I pray today that we grasp that message for ourselves. This isn't a message for someone else. This is for us now, Lord, right now. And Lord, will you let it radically change our lives? Paul and Jacob were never the same from that moment, Lord. Will you not let us be the same from this moment either, Lord Jesus? We are sons and daughters of the living God if we put our faith in you, Lord. Will you let it radically change us and let it radically change the way we lead our lives? In Jesus' name I pray that. Amen.